Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for taking the time to join us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. The tone of this episode is probably going to be a bit different today. For context, we're recording this on February 28th, and on February 24th, as you almost certainly already know, Russia invaded Ukraine in the largest military operation in Europe since World War II. I'd like to start just by saying that our hearts go out to the people of Ukraine, and I hope that as many people involved in this conflict as possible are able to stay safe. And I think that, like many people, we wish there were more we could do. It's hard to feel anything other than a bit helpless here. We're seeing this conflict back here in the United States play out over our screens. We're filled with sympathy and empathy for the people who are directly experiencing it. And then alongside the helplessness, there's no small measure of anxiety, just speaking personally for ourselves, for how this could potentially cascade over time into larger conflicts and the potential implications of that. This is a crisis and a tragedy, and it's also just the latest in a long line of events stretching back to the virtual dawn of human civilization, where regular people who've done nothing wrong suffer immensely as the strong use them as pawns in this great struggle for power, this enormous game of chess, and it's incredibly easy for that to make everyone feel extremely small and for it all to feel profoundly, deeply unfair. And it feels like we've had just more than our own fair share of crisis and tragedy over the last couple of years here. And so today, we're going to be talking about that. And we're going to be focusing on what we can do in our mind and in our lives to relate to the challenging emotions that come up during times like this. Fear, grief, anxiety, helplessness, and so on. Alongside that, for those who are witnessing this conflict from afar, we're probably going to explore some degree of how we can stay engaged without just becoming overwhelmed by it. And there might even be some applications here, too, for people who are going through their own crises about how they can continue to make good choices and, to a degree, stay calm under pressure. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, and he's also my dad, which feels maybe particularly important today. So, Dad, how have you been doing over the last couple of days here? Well, thank you, Forrest, for that extremely touching setup. And like you, I've been stunned by the breadth and severity of the Russian invasion. We've seen all this unfold before our very eyes, and my reactions have been a mixture of feelings of care and concern for the people of Ukraine who have stunned the world with their independent spirit and their successfulness in holding strong, certainly the first week or so of this. And also I'm stepping back and, and like you alluded to, worried about the ultimate implications for this playing out with two superpowers, with you know the NATO alliance with the United States, who are both armed with nuclear weapons. So of course, it's really quite concerning. And we're trying to find a middle way of both being aware of what's happening without being doom scrolling about it, and also trying to find a way to, you know, support oneself and each other. So I'm mm-hmm. very engaged with this topic for us, and I'm yeah really happy you brought it up. Mm, yeah, and to state probably the obvious here, 
Rick and I both have our own views. We're pretty politically engaged people, as you could probably tell if you've listened to the podcast for a while. And at the same time, this is not a political podcast. We are not geopolitics experts here. So we want to be, you know, deferential a little bit about our own understanding of the situation. And we're mostly approaching this from the lens of what we can do in the temple of our own minds when things really go sideways, as they have over the last couple of days here for so many people. And related to that, I've included a link to a page of resources in the details of today's episode, which includes a list of charities focused on supporting the people of Ukraine, as well as those who have been displaced by the conflict. I'll be donating to those causes, and if you're able to do so, I encourage you to donate as well. So the overall structure of this episode is going to follow a a kind of plan, some content that we've developed around how to live during these difficult times. But one of the emails that we've received several times from people is just some version of, I am freaking out about everything that is going on right now. I'm filled with anxiety and fear and concern. And I just feel like my system has been on high alert, even if I'm not a person who's directly involved in this conflict over the last couple of days. So I thought that it might be nice here to just give us all a little bit of relief and a little pause, which we're going to talk about in a second, and start with a practice focused on calming some anxiety. And so Rick, if you're open to doing that, I think that that would be really appropriate here. I think that's great. We don't usually do this. Yeah. I'll keep it to five minutes if people want to skip ahead. Yeah. So here we go. This is going to be experiential. It'll have a little quiet in it. I'll say as little as possible while offering some suggestions. I'm going to begin with a very simple fundamental practice I call the three breaths practice. So here we go, and I'll do it with you. In the first breath, be aware of breathing in your chest as a whole. So breathing while feeling your chest as a whole. Few breaths in which you're aware of air flowing into your chest and flowing out. The whole chest, front and back, left and right, top and bottom. Letting breathing be natural in your own rhythm. And then in the second breath, breathing while feeling caring. A simple experience of kindness, friendliness, compassion, support, even love. Being aware of one or more beings that you have a warm heart for. So in the second sort of breath, breathing while feeling caring. If you like, you can put a hand on your heart, a sense of the breath flowing in and out of the heart, breathing while feeling caring in simple, experiential ways.
If your mind wanders, that's fine. Come on back. See if you can kind of marinate in the sense of being caring while staying in touch with breathing as well. If you like, you can add soft thoughts in the back of your mind, such as, may you not suffer. May you be safe. May you find shelter. May you find peace. Or whatever you might like to softly think to yourself. Offering your heart and good wishes far and wide. And then in the third sort of breath, breathe while feeling cared about. Keeping it really simple. Your pets, your friends, your family, people who care about you. Even if sometimes they get on your nerves, you know, they, they, they're your friend. They wish you well. They're grateful to you. Maybe they love you. So I'll be quiet for some breaths here as you focus on breathing while feeling cared about. What's it like to be with your friends? What's it like to be with someone who loves you? Breathing while feeling cared about. If it's hard to get in touch with feeling cared about, that's okay. It's probably a bit of a tip to look for more opportunities to genuinely experience that and take it in. And even just knowing conceptually that some people, some beings in your past or in your present have wished you well can give you a legitimate opportunity to feel cared about. So then as I finish here, we'll take another half minute or so to just rest. Feeling your chest as a whole, feeling caring and cared about, and recognizing that in this moment, and this one, in the present, now and now, you're probably basically all right, right now, in the present. When you're not, you're not, but you probably usually are. So you can afford to recognize, ah, in this moment, I'm basically okay. in touch with yourself, warm-hearted, and basically okay. You can take refuge in the direct experience of this. Okay. That was lovely, Dad. Thanks for taking the time to do that. 
And it flows really wonderfully into the first thing that we wanted to talk about here today, which is part of this content that we've put together related to how to make it through difficult times, how to relate to them, maybe things that could be helpful, even if you're in the middle of a very challenging experience as well. And the first one that I wanted to talk about is just pausing. Our brains are built to process threat before everything else. This was an incredibly successful strategy back in the day, and these days it can be very successful when it comes to keeping us alive. But it also massively sensitizes us to the world around us. And I think that what a lot of people are wrestling with right now, assuming that they're not directly involved in what's happening in Eastern Europe right now, is this weird internal tension and dichotomy between an immediate sense of I'm sitting here in this room talking with my dad, I'm obviously entirely safe, practically speaking, right now, mixed with an understanding of the horrible things that are going on to people many thousands of miles away. And then mixed with that, there's this anxiety about the possibility of direct threat to me individually in the future. And that's a really complicated cocktail for people to handle emotionally. And the first step to me of dealing with that is just by taking a little pause. There have been a lot of times over the last few days where I've just kind of noticed myself holding my breath more. And just taking a moment to take a big, slow breath can feel like a real luxury. And so if you feel like you've been doing that, you can absolutely take this as an invitation to just have a moment to breathe and to breathe very slowly. And for me, I think that little pause is kind of everything. That everything flows out of that moment of calm and relaxation. Because initially, just the way our brain works, is that the fast parts of it are the parts that are kind of closer to the brainstem, the amygdala, similar brain structures. These parts that are built to process threat. And that can be very helpful at times. It's appropriate for us to get ramped up about stuff. But a lot of the time when those parts get activated, the more cortical structures of the brain get bypassed and we don't use them as much. So if you're going to make deliberate action in your life, if you're going to take a step for something, take a stand for something, make a dramatically important decision during a moment of profound threat that could influence a lot of the rest of your life, well, then we want to, if possible, be using the parts of our brain that are kind of built for that logical processing, that deep thought. And one of the ways to get to that is just by slowing down. So what do you think about this, Dad? I think you're incredibly wise for us, Dad. <laughs> People can you know, judge what you're saying on the merits, which are excellent, excellent. I wanted to add to what you said, or build on it really, that mm -hmm. uh, one thing that the pause does that you describe is it naturally tends to engage systems in us that are centering repairing, you know, gathering our forces inward uh, and relaxing, which is really, really useful. The other thing I was just reflecting on is how in our media culture, there's this sense that we need to be always available to information flowing in and we become kind of information hungry, including mm -hmm. at a time like mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. So we're staking the stem. I am a card carrying addict you know, for the next little pop-up bit of data in my Twitter yeah. feed, you know, about developments in the Ukraine. And so we need to kind of beware that tendency 
to feel on the one hand that we have to be accessible to all these inputs and also a kind of hunger for more information. We can regulate Mm. that. And we can also in the pause, so the pause helps us to regulate that. The pause also teaches us that we don't need to act immediately. We don't need to jump to conclusions. We can wait a little bit. Yeah, most of the time. Yeah, we don't need to uh, run around, the sky's falling and and do something. We can kind of, you know, settle ourselves, stabilize, and then launch from there. And I just want to kind of reinforce what you're saying there for a second, because I think that it's really tempting to have an immediate response maybe to to what I just said or what Rick just said, which is, wow, when the sky is actually falling, shouldn't I be moving kind of quickly? And shouldn't I be really paying attention to the fact that the sky is falling? And for starters, absolutely yes. <laughs> you know, That's part of why we're having this conversation. And at the same time, most of the time you have a second or two seconds. And I think that almost always a second spent here or there, and it can just be a few moments. You don't have to pause for a day. You don't have to pause for a week. It can be a few moments to take a breath, to try to see the situation clearly, to move out of that feeling that we've all had of such intense activation that you stop seeing the world clearly. That's what we're trying to get out of. And then even after that, pick your number. One breath, three breath, 10 breath. You can move into action with a lot of speed and a lot of agency and a lot of authority. But all of the actions that you take after that moment become stronger based on the fact that you've taken that moment, at least in my experience. That's great. I want to offer, maybe I'll do it myself and you can build on it. uh, The second sort of major suggestion in your summary really of best practices. That's what you've done here for us. You have a list of best practices for us people to do when the bottom falls out. Okay. So second, feel your feelings. In other words, open to your experience, recognize it. The pause helps give you that place of stability from which you can witness your experience. You're not trying to change it. You can accept it for what it is, even if it's really unpleasant, really painful. It is what it is. And this awareness of what we feel with mindfulness, which gives us a sense of spaciousness around it, this awareness of what we feel actually helps it flow yeah, and kind of keep moving. The term you've, you've used it, experiencing things out, mm-hmm. you know, on the way out the door. Yeah. And things that kind of help us to do that, if you can just remain aware of, let's say, of the internal sensations of breathing, technically that engages a part of the brain, the insula that acts like a circuit breaker when you're starting to spin out in the ruminator with all sorts of thoughts and fantasies and just tuning into your body, the internal sensations gives you that kind of stable place inside where you're in the present with also a sense of the ongoingness of yourself. You're basically okay so that you can actually afford to feel your feelings and open to them and to let them flow, including feelings like outrage or helplessness or fear or just the desire to be left alone. I think there's some line out of the Lord of the Rings that's all along the lines of, it is not given to us to choose the times in which we live, but it is given to us to choose how we live with the times that we're in. Yeah, I there's this funny dichotomy that I've been kind of grappling with a little bit recently, which is this way in which, you know, last night I was getting ready for bed. And 
I have a normal bedtime routine, as most people do. I washed my face, I brushed my teeth. And it was just funny little moment of reflection as I'm sitting there with my electric toothbrush, you know, going to town on my molars. And I'm just thinking about, wow, I'm doing this while so many people around the world right now, obviously we're focusing here specifically on the situation in Ukraine, but the reality is that there are horrible things happening everywhere all the time. And that's not to diminish any of them. It's just to acknowledge that that is the state of nature. And to have this moment where I'm just sitting there brushing my teeth as somebody else is having the worst day of their life. And on the one hand, it feels kind of absurd to sit there and brush my teeth. And at the same time, it feels kind of absurd not to. And I think that one of the things that makes this so challenging for people is the balance between those those two absurdities. And what do you do with that? And that, for me, gets to the core of the feel-your-feelings idea. I think it's really easy to push away intense feelings during this time, to get into denial about them, to get down on yourself about them, to think about, wow, maybe there are other people who aren't experiencing this as intensely as I am, whatever it might be. And in my own experience, uh, when I give myself the space to just get really sad about something, to get really angry about something, to have an emotional eruption, it makes everything else that happens afterward a little cleaner because I've been authentic with myself about my own experience. And that authenticity then gives us such a powerful ground from which to take possible action in the future. That's beautifully said for us. Hmm. Well, thank you. Do you want to speak further about resourcing yourself, your third best practice? Yeah, absolutely. And it's just really tied to the, to the emotions that people naturally experience around these times. And when things like the current crisis happen, to me, it often feels like there are these two camps that emerge. And the first group says some version of, we should all be 24-7 only paying attention to this thing. We should be hyper-vigilant about it. We should be completely focused about it. People are dying. These are horrible events. You know, This should be the thing. And then there's the second camp that kind of emerges, and you can see these two camps duking it out over social media on the regular. The second says some version of like, well, I can't really do anything about it, so what's the point in thinking about it? And I feel like there's a healthy middle path between both of these perspectives. But I want to start by emphasizing something that that might come across a little bit harsh. No one is benefited by someone being so overwhelmed by empathic grief that they cease to function. And I think that that's a really core point in this whole conversation that we're having here, because there's a level of, of empathy and compassion and grief and awareness that really moves us into action. And then there's a level that just totally incapacitates us that swamps us in so much anxiety or sadness that we just kind of cease to see the world clearly and we become incapable of contributing in some kind of a positive way. So there needs to be some form of balance, even in the midst of immense tragedy and immense difficulty for so many people. And you can't pour out of an empty cup. So I think that maybe particularly when times are difficult, particularly when your life is hard, particularly when you feel like you're running on empty. It becomes so important to take a moment for yourself, whatever that looks like for you, 
to resource yourself in various ways to develop some of the, you know, the inner stability, the equanimity that we've talked about many times on the podcast, because that's actually what supports us and empowers us in being an asset to ourselves, to the world, and to other people. And arguably the first of those is compassion and self-compassion. Yeah, for sure. I was reflecting, Forrest, on what you said uh, really correctly that what's happening in the Ukraine is focusing our, our eyes and attention. But meanwhile, all kinds of oppressive action from state yeah. governments, whether it's the Chinese government and Tibet, other countries around the world, and then other forms of poverty and despotism and difficulty. So it's it's not just the Ukraine, and it's really appropriate, I think, to use that as a way to open our hearts and our gaze to all that's happening in the world. So that's part one. And part two is just, wow, compassion. You know, it's this simple human response. They're suffering. And it's interesting that research shows that people can have empathy fatigue, but they don't get compassion fatigue. Hmm. Because compassion, with this heartfeltness, uh, you know, compassion is bittersweet. There's empathy for suffering, but predominantly... There's that warm-hearted, benevolent, sympathetic concern and supportiveness and desire to help if one can, that those positive emotions that are present in compassion are actually reparative for people and refueling, which is a good thing. So I want to highlight compassion, certainly. And then if you like, I'll tell you a couple of go-tos that I use myself. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. And you know, there are times in life where because we're connected to the wider world through our families and our organizations, our communities and our country and international order, we are connected to things that are happening at larger scales. So it's, it's understandable that when these things happen, you wonder about their personal impact and you have feelings about them. That's completely appropriate. And it's part of recognizing our interdependence with all that is which is only increasing in very practical ways as the years go by, right? And countries and companies and humanity altogether becomes increasingly connected. So in that context then, when you look to your own simple being as a person, I start really physically and primally. Mm, Drink a little mm -hmm. water. Yeah. Resource totally. yourself. Get a little food. Take a nap. Yeah, take a nap, make a decent meal. Your mom laughs at how I will just slow down to make myself a decent lunch, right? And I've worked in all kinds of situations where people would just sort of laugh that I would take 20 minutes to make a little decent lunch. But that process really is restorative. You know, it really refuels me. So slow it down, do simple, basic things. The other major thing I'll just mention is, of course, turn to other people. Yeah. Give them a hug, receive a hug. If we can't, and we can't completely control what other people give to us, we have actually pretty limited influence over that, but we can give them our friendliness, our sympathy, our concern. What's it like for them to be dealing with all the things they're dealing with too? Um, and the things we're talking about, just to finish, are useful not just for when it looks like the world is falling apart, but when your most immediate life is falling apart too. Someone maybe mm. has just left you, or maybe you've suffered yeah. a, a loss. Maybe your your job has changed badly. Maybe like a friend of mine has recently received a tough cancer diagnosis. You know, the things we're covering aren't just about reacting to world affairs 10,000 miles away, 
but also what um, can give you heart and where you can take heart when things fall apart very, very close to home. I want to highlight one element of this resourcing process and maybe a particular resource for me, which is humor. Uh, there have been a few moments during this conversation where you've noticed, probably if you've been listening closely, Rick or I chuckle about something or we make a little joke or whatever it might be. And there have been past episodes that we've done, particularly some of the early uh, COVID episodes that we did, where we had a similar response. We had little joking moments with each other, whatever it was. And we actually got a couple of emails that said something along the lines of, oh, you know, how can you laugh about this sort of thing? It's so serious. And I think that it's a it's a totally understandable question, but I want to make a little distinction here. There's a difference between laughing about something that is immensely serious and giving yourself a break for a minute. Mm -hmm. I do think that there is a meaningful distinction there because sometimes you resource yourself through little moments of levity. You resource yourself through the connection you can find with another person while you're recording a podcast with them here through a little extra smile, a little extra grin, a kind of shrug at the bizarreness of the universe and the limitations of your own ability to influence it in positive ways. You know, We have to find ways to keep on going when things are challenging. And I think that one of the ways to do that is by having those moments of levity and those moments of space. And so for me, people just really try to make this either or so much of the time when the truth is that it's actually and. Oh, well said, you know, and I think mm. too, from the example of people, unlike you and I, who have had to deal with really, really harsh conditions directly, right? Yeah, they've been totally. refugees, they've lived under occupation, they've had to take up arms to defend their country. And one thing you say, find about them is grim humor. There's a yeah, place for it. It's totally. okay, you know, it's, it's one of the things that really, really helps. Yeah. Well, do you want to... Take a handoff here. I'll nominate the fourth best practice on your list, get educated. You want to speak to that one? Yeah, and uh, I would love your input on this, Dad, because I know that you've done a lot of thinking about it in general. But kind of like we were saying earlier about taking a pause, when bad things happen, there's often this rush to be first. The first person to have an opinion, the first person to make a decision, the first content creator in our space to put out a piece of content related to these topics or these issues. And I think that one of the most useful opinions a person can have, one of the most useful moments of self-recognition, is the confession that they don't yet know enough to have an opinion. And yet, in the way that the culture has gone, it feels like you need to have a view about everything. And so taking, again, a pause, taking a moment to get educated, to get informed, to think deeply about something before making a choice or coming to a decision or deciding how you're going to relate to something or feel about it, I think is an immensely powerful thing to do. I'm uh, writing a book, and one of the chapters in it is called Love What's Real. Mm. And this is a book on relationships, and that chapter is about our relationship to really the wider world. Yeah, And when you think about it, that which is real, painful or not, that which is real is our primary refuge and touchstone. It's where we take our stand, because if we're not taking our stand in what's actually true, simple things like, is there food in the cupboard? Is the person you're sleeping next to loyal to you? Mm. 
do you have a job? You know, what is actually true? Is your country being invaded? What is actually true? At all scales, does a medicine actually work or do you need to think about other treatments? What's actually true? That's such a profound touchstone. And so those who support the finding out of what's true and respect for those who do try to find out what's true, whose hallmark is they're willing to be corrected mm. when what they thought was true was not actually true. They're open to correction. Yeah. And they operate collaboratively. So when you have multiple fingers pointing at the same thing, you can have a lot of confidence that what they're pointing at is actually real. It does exist. It's the fact, so forth. So yeah. it's really, for me, sacred, actually, to seek the truth and to protect it. And so what you see in any kind of unhealthy family, you know, my whole background, family therapy, couples counseling, the hallmark of an unhealthy family is family secrets, is mm. and hidden truths, and more fundamentally and pathologically, the actual matter of truth-seeking being attacked and punished even for those who would seek the truth in their families to say, well, Uncle Bob is actually really creepy. He's not just overly affectionate. He's actually creepy. Or mom is actually drinking too much. What are we going to do about it? You know, in unhealthy families, there's an attack on truth tellers. Well, scale it up, you see the same thing at the largest level. So yeah. over time, you start to observe who are those who are actually seeking facts, who are willing to be corrected, who operate collaboratively, and who are those that kind of live in their own strange silo in which they have the grandiose notion that only they have the real, real scoop on what's really going on. And the yeah. other 97% of the doctors, the scientists, the people engaged in you know serious nonprofits of different kinds around the world, they're all wrong. They're all missing yeah. it. And so you can judge right off the top who are credible sources and who are not. And then sure. I'll say just to finish that sometimes people think, oh, it's so complicated, world affairs, I don't know. Really? 10 minutes, 10 minutes with your eyes open. If you can, you read, do you have an internet connection? 10 minutes, you can find out, boom, 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 you know, from multiple credible sources, whether it's scientific organizations, university websites, professional associations, credible media like the BBC and the New York Times. These credible sources are not perfect. They don't get it right every single time, but they're open to correction and they operate collaboratively. And therefore, are credible sources that can provide education, like you were saying for us, so that knowledge really is power. And when you have mm. more of a sense of what's actually the case, including the history of the last 10, 50, 100 years in, for example, the part of the world that's been called the bloodlands of Europe, you can really feel like you're standing on solid ground because you're informed about what's really true. Yeah, totally. And two things to highlight out of what you've said there. And the first is knowing when you don't know everything, but you know enough to make a choice. Yeah, You are not going to learn the history of Eastern Europe in 10 minutes. What is happening today in Ukraine stands on the shoulders of 100 years of history in that part of the world, if not more than that. And 
The relationships geopolitically between these countries are immensely complex and enmeshed, and the cultural relationships between Ukraine and Russia and the parts of Ukraine that feel like they should be a part of Russia and the parts of Ukraine that don't, and the whole long, sad story coming out of that, like that's a very, very complex conversation. But do you need all of that to be able to get a good sense of what's going on these days? No, you don't. Most of the time, you really don't. And you can get to a point where you go, okay, I think I'm educated enough to be able to see clearly what's going on here. And then alongside that, having some humility about the limitations of your own knowledge. I think that really relates to what you were saying, Dad, about, okay, I'm going to have the outlier view held by you know 2% of the experts here, and I'm going to really align with those 2% of the experts and I'm going to say that the 98% has no idea what they're talking about. There have absolutely been times in human history, for the record, where the 2% were right and the 98% were wrong. Galileo was right. Yeah, Galileo was <laughs> right. You know, like the church really was oppressing people, all of yeah. that stuff. Yeah. So like, this is not a foolproof plan. And I'm not saying, you know, just be a lemming. But I am saying that these days, that kind of broad-scale conspiracy theory view is increasingly dangerous because yeah. it is held by an increasingly large percentage of the population that there is some global conspiracy and you know so on and so on, whether it's about vaccines or whatever else. So I think that it's important to be really humble sometimes about the limitations of our own knowledge and about what we do and don't know and to use that humility as a place from which to become increasingly educated. It's interesting to finish here that, as you know, I'm involved with the Greater Good Science Center, yeah. uh, UC mm -hmm. Berkeley, and advisor there and senior fellow, all that. And the Greater Good Science Center is fantastic. By the way, it's a great hub of resources of all kinds, yeah, including for, for sure. when things fall apart. And Greater Good Science Center, ggsc.org, yeah. I think. Anyway, they're doing a project that's been funded around what's called intellectual humility. Just mm, what you're saying. Love that. Yeah. yeah. So there's some academic energy behind what you're saying as well here, Forrest. Awesome. Yeah, no, it, and I think that, man, it's a huge self-awareness issue. And one of the comments that I made on a previous episode of the podcast is that self-awareness, I think, is just the hardest thing to teach at a large-scale level for us to find inside of ourselves. It's one of the big barriers to growth in therapy is when people lack self-awareness, and it's one of the most challenging things to develop clinically with a client. So it's a huge, huge piece of the puzzle. So, yeah. okay, to kind of return to our structure here, you've taken a pause, you've felt your feelings, you've taken some time to learn about what's going on, and you've resourced yourself in meaningful ways. Once we've checked all of those boxes, I think that it's time to start making a plan. And this, to me, is the critical, critical question, both for people who are immediately in an intense experience and for people who are witnessing it from afar. Because what are you actually going to do? And the reality is that if we're external to these various calamities, there's very little that we can do. And one of the big parts of the process is coming to terms with the limits of our own influence. And in order to calm our own anxieties, it's quite common for people to move into what I'll refer to as performative action. 
This includes stuff like trauma voyeurism through cable news, or doom scrolling, or thoughts and prayers. Things where you feel like you're doing something, but you're really just activating your own anxieties, and you're doing that to feel better about the fact that you are not the person who's immediately involved in the situation. It's kind of a form of survivorship guilt. And not only are those things not useful, they're actually actively harmful. They wear us down without contributing much of value, and perhaps even worse, they can give us the sense that we are doing something when we're actually not, which can limit us from doing things that might actually make a difference in the world in some meaningful way. And so I think that this make-a-plan aspect, including getting really granular, is such a huge part of how to deal with our often overwhelming emotions that can emerge out of situations like this. And I know that you are a uh, major planning advocate, Dad, so I'm going to kind of toss it over to you here, (laughs) particularly in terms of the particulars of how people can go about doing this. A, you can make a plan for yourself. Yeah. In other words, a plan for, okay, how am I going to resource myself? How am I going to deal with this situation? How am I going to, let's say, budget the amount of time I'm going to give the news, after which I just turn it off and I'll check in you know, later tonight, let's yeah. say. So you're making a plan for yourself. B, you can make a plan that involves the people around you. It could be a very simple plan that you're just not going to get into stupid arguments with trolls on Facebook, some of whom might be your cousins. By the way, that's not true for me. My cousins are cool. They're all Our cool. cousins are lovely, but <laughs> They're all still. Good. It was hypothetical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. And also it might be that you have family members who are kind of freaking out or they're worried mm-hmm. or they're particularly reactive or maybe they have some immediate involvement. I, I read that there's something like 80,000 Ukrainian Americans living in the state of Ohio. Yeah. That's just mm. one state. Yep. Okay. So plan for other people. Third, and this can get a little tricky for people because I'm going to start naming some things that maybe some people would rather not think about or deal with, but I'm just going to name them in part because there are a lot of other people who are thinking about them and are trying to make sense of them. For some people, they're going to be thinking about extraordinarily unlikely, one in a million, but still pretty significant catastrophic scenarios. And what's sensible for you? To, mm-hmm. to do in the one in a million scenario that that thing actually does indeed happen. So if you're you know around an hour later or a day later or a month later after that thing has happened, what do you really want to wish or be glad about that you had prepared in simple, doable ways within your range without yeah. becoming some kind of doomsday prepper? So I'll leave it there, but I'm just going to put all that on the table. Yeah, I completely co-sign all of that. And then just adding a little bit onto it, once you've made that plan, of course, all plans are subject to change. Everything is an evolving situation. As we talked about during the learning section, a very important thing to do is to not get too attached to your current state of knowledge and to be open to updating it as situations change and as facts change. At the same time, One of the things about creating a distinct plan that can really free us from a lot of painful emotional experiences is coming to peace with the nature of our plan. You know, you're making the choice. You've said, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to stick with this until there's some meaningful reason that I should change it. 
Because I think one of the things that can really preoccupy us is a lot of internal processing around, is this the right plan? Should I be doing something else? Have I done enough? And to the extent to which it's possible for you, and you know, this is a hard thing to do, to find some release in the plan that you've made. Mm. And this takes us very, very smoothly into the kind of final key point that I have here, which is moving into action. We've talked about this a thousand times on the podcast. It is my you know, siren song, which is that one of the most effective ways to reduce our anxieties about the world is to move into direct action. When we experience our own agency, we feel more like a hammer and less like a nail. And we reclaim our ability to influence the world around this. And this could take place at any scale. This could mean finding a cause that maybe you really can contribute to in a positive way that's local to you, where maybe it has nothing to do with the current geopolitical crisis. But the reality is that when major crises unfold, when big things happen off in the world, it means that things that are closer to home, maybe causes that you really deeply care about, can get kind of lost in the shuffle. And so something to ask yourself is, what's something meaningful that you could actually do right now or over the next few days that would make a positive impact? Maybe that's giving to a charity, like some of the ones that we mentioned earlier, where I'm going to include that link again as a reminder in the notes. Maybe it is supporting some other cause that you have a deep emotional attachment to. Maybe it is being there for a friend. Maybe it's being a shoulder to cry on. Maybe it's supporting somebody else through this really emotional time for many people. And then, of course, it's just as important, if not more important, to begin to take that action if you are immediately involved in a profoundly stressful or traumatic situation. When people are able to claim a degree of agency around profoundly stressful events, they often end up feeling better in the future than if they hadn't been able to. So I think that finding those small ways, if possible, to move into action can be enormously helpful and healing for people. Even if it's, again, just things that feel very small in the moment, finding the stone that you can move. And so some of these actions can be directly related to helping, whether it's the people of Ukraine or previously people who have been harmed by the COVID plague. We help. We want to help others. That's a form of action. Another area, just like you said, of agency is brushing your teeth. You know, yeah. <laughs> or just, yeah. choo just choosing to look out the window or to choose your to make yourself a cup of tea. Here's where, under the heading of moving into action, I'd like to somewhat carefully name a very important domain of action, which has to do with the influence that we each have to some small but real extent on larger scale political historical events. And to put it kind of simply, what we see in the Russian invasion of Ukraine is an autocratic kleptocracy, the Russian government allied with a bunch of billionaire oligarchs desperately trying to stamp out a free and open society, a democratically organized society of the Slavic people right next door. That's the fundamental conflict here between authoritarianism, totalitarianism, you know, the Game of Thrones, really, and the emerging over the last several centuries 
uh, beginnings of free and open societies that are essentially democratic. They're flawed, they're messy, we all argue with each other, but there's a world of difference between a messy democracy and King Henry VIII or other yeah, equivalent totally. dictatorships around the world today. So that's the collision. And in our own personal lives, through how we vote broadly, every year, two or three or four at the ballot box, but much more fundamentally, how we speak, how we think, who we stand up for, who we stand against. The, the contrast is really pretty clear between those who are promoting democratization broadly worldwide and those who are doing everything they possibly can to undermine it and stamp it out. And so to the extent that people want to take action in this regard, they can stand up for the what's called the liberal project. It's not associated with the Democratic Party. It's the broad liberal project that began a lot with the founding fathers in the American Revolution that stood up against an authoritarian regime, you know, England at the time, and stood up for free and open societies. And that's mm. a kind of action we can take as well. And one of the things that I've really liked about how you've conceived of this dad, because you've talked about this a number of times in, in various pieces of writing that you've done, is how you generalize the notion of quote-unquote voting from the simple political act to the broad way that we show up in the world. Like, how do we vote with our actions? How do we vote with our behaviors towards other people? Because yeah. you're talking about principles at the end of the day. Like, what are you going to stand up for? And I think that can be a very powerful way that we find agency in our lives, that we find those little forms of action that we can take where we can reflect on things and look back and go, you know what? There was only so much that I could have done, but I did what I could. And man, that, at least for me, just gives me an immense feeling of freedom when I actually feel like I showed up in those ways. And I don't always feel that way. You know, I don't always feel like I did everything that I could. But when I do, it is enormously freeing. And I think that's a really powerful part of what you're talking about here. That's great. I, I looked yeah. up the root of the word for vote. Mm. It's vow. Mm. What's your vow? Which is your word, your sacred word. And we exercise a vow through our actions. And when you know that at least in your own little circle, you've kept your vow and whatever stones you've been tossing into that pond, whatever ripples they have out into the world, you've held truth to yourself. You've mm -hmm. held fast. And that is a great comfort to oneself and a moral example to others. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't really know how to bring this one to a tidy close here. I think that that was just such a beautiful, such a beautiful turn of phrase you had there, Dad. And it feels like a really lovely place to leave this episode. But there's obviously so much more that we could talk about here today. And it's just a challenging time to be a person in the world, or at least it feels that way to me. There have been other challenging times to be a person in the world as well. There are ways in which our standard of living has improved enormously over the last hundred years, certainly over the last thousand years, all of that. And yet there are also ways in which modern life and the immediacy of information, the size of the plausible threats that we face, all of it 
just makes it feel so darn overwhelming so much of the time. So if that's what you have been experiencing over the last couple of days, over the last weeks, over the last months, over the last few years of this whole COVID experience that we've been going through together, I mostly want to end just by validating your experience. By saying, yeah, this has been immensely challenging for so many people, even for the people who are in the very fortunate position, as I am, of having been able to shield themselves in a variety of different ways from direct exposure to so many of the challenges that people face. I think that that's all that I've got to say for today. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts here, Dad. Just that you summarized it really beautifully and including your appreciation that so many people in the world and so many people throughout history have had to deal with hard times. Yeah. And they got through it. We can get through it too. Yeah. And we can take heart actually in our own good intentions, the good intentions and good heart of other people and in the ways in which our planet has been here a long, long, long time. And it's going to still be here a long, long, long time from now. So today we talked about living during difficult times. There have been many, many difficult times throughout human history, and it feels like over the last couple of years, we've found ourselves in another one. So what can we do in the midst of often being able to do so little for ourselves and for the people around us? How can we support those who are experiencing the most challenging times while also filling our own cup? How can we make positive change out in the world without becoming overwhelmed by the suffering of other people? And what can we do inside ourselves to make the best decisions possible and to put ourselves in a position to not only manage the challenging emotions that we experience, but to make good choices out in the world with our actions. So we began today's episode with a brief practice from Rec focused on calming some of the natural anxiety that might have emerged during this time. And from there, we went into some of the key principles that can help people during times of considerable difficulty. The first one of these was pause. Unless your physical safety is in immediate danger, it can be incredibly helpful to begin by pausing. And even when we're under immense pressure and difficulty, we can often find the space for a moment or two to breathe, to consider our next movement, and then to commit to it strongly. That can maximize our chances of success. Fear makes us fast, and speed often makes us foolish. So just a moment of pausing can be all the difference. Then, second, feel your feelings. It is understandable these days to feel overwhelmed, exhausted, anxious. There are just a whole stew of challenging emotions that are a part of our completely understandable experience of the world these days. And by denying the presence of those emotions, we limit our ability to interact with them effectively, to overcome them, and to experience them out of our system. What we resist tends to persist. And in that, we can walk the middle path between being counterphobic by denying our emotions or pushing away understandable anxieties and fears, 
and also catastrophizing, where we become so overwhelmed by our anxieties that we cease to be able to function. And that gets to the second point, which is to resource yourself. During times like these, it can feel immensely selfish to take even just a little bit of time to support yourself, to do something that you enjoy, that you find fulfilling or fun. But the truth is that other people aren't going to suffer less just because you're suffering too. And when you fill your own cup, you have more you can give to other people. Then it's incredibly important these days to become educated about what's going on out in the world, to trust reliable sources, to believe experts, and to have the humility to admit that you don't yet know enough to have an opinion sometimes. That's really okay. I don't either. But even just a small investment of effort, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, to look up some good sourcing, to get a sense of the broader issues at play, and to come to the sense inside of yourself that maybe you don't know everything there is to know, but you know enough and you've done your due diligence here. Then, once you've been educated, it's time to make a plan. And this is the critical question these days. What are you actually going to do? And inside of that, often there is a confession that there is little that we can do about what's going on halfway around the world, other than give our empathy and our sympathy and our deep compassion toward those who are going through that experience. And often what happens when people feel like there's very little that they can do is that they try to calm their own anxiety by moving toward performative action. This includes trauma voyeurism, doom scrolling, thoughts and prayers, all of that. And the problem with this is that it gives people often a false sense that they are truly helping while also wearing them down. They're not filling their own cup. They're not contributing in meaningful ways out in the world. They're just getting anxious and angry and burnt out. And from there, we can move into action. And even if there isn't a lot that we can do about some issues, there are things we can always do about something. When we move into action, we reclaim our agency out in the world. We start to feel like a hammer rather than a nail again. And perhaps there's truly nothing you can do right now about some distant source of terror. But when big things happen out in the world, it often removes the opportunity for smaller things, which are still enormous, important issues. But when big things happen out in the world, it often pulls the lens away from other worthy causes that do need your support that maybe you could do more about. So if you're feeling a little helpless these days, take a moment to write down some things that you could contribute to that are maybe a little closer to home. Those things still matter too. So I'd like to close the episode by reminding you that I've included a link to a bunch of resources in the details of today's episode, and that includes a number of charities that are focused on supporting the people of Ukraine. I'll be donating. I hope that if you're able to do so, you will join me in donating as well. Once again, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to these episodes. We really hope that they have been in some small way helpful to you during the difficult times that so many people are experiencing these days. And it really just means a lot to me as well that there are people who take the time out of their days, take the time out of their lives to listen to this content and to be so engaged with it. That's it for today, and we'll talk to you soon.